I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We would like to offer our respects to the traditional owners of all generations upon whose lands this podcast has been created. We'd also like to acknowledge any First Nations listeners. Sharing this with the world has been one of the most affirming and heartening experiences of my entire life, and I don't say that lightly, but people have rallied from far and wide and the reaction and reception has just been beyond anything that I could ever, ever in my wildest dreams have imagined. Hello and welcome to The New Writers' Room, a podcast for emerging writers. My name is Sarah Malik and I am your host. Today we have our last episode for the year. We chat to the first and second place winners of this year's SBS Emerging Writers' Competition. This year, the third annual competition attracted thousands of entries, and the best five were chosen by our judges, Alice Pung and Christos Schulkes. In this episode, we meet our winner, Tessa Piper, and our runner-up, Monica Elia. Welcome to the show, Tessa and Monica. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I am going to start with you, Tessa. What was it like to get the news that you had won? It was absolutely mind-blowing. I can honestly say that I wrote this piece and thought that maybe one person at SBS might read it and that would be that. So to receive the news that I had won the entire competition was absolutely beyond anything that I could have ever dreamed of. Um, I was at the local pool. I had my kids there. They were desperate to jump in the water and I was standing there with sunscreen sort of not rubbed in properly, crying, and they're like, what's wrong, Mum? What's wrong? I'm like, nothing's wrong. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I can only imagine how exciting this all is. And, Monica, for you, what was it like getting the news that, you know, you were a winner out of thousands of entries? I really wasn't expecting it at all. Um, When I got a missed call from SBS, I knew that I'd written an article for SBS Voices before and I assumed it was like related to that. I didn't even put two and two together. I know we were like, Monica's being very cool and casual about this. I mean, does she know that she potentially could have won this competition? Oh, this is probably like an SBS Voices article or something, or maybe like a survey. You know, like, (laughs) oh, what, what was your experience working with SBS or something like that? Oh my God. I love that. It's so funny. Um, let's just dive right into your incredible pieces. Um, now Tessa, you know, your piece, the judges said, this is a story full of urgent vitality, artistically rendered in a truly affecting way that is without artifice. What was it like getting that feedback from Alice Pung and Christos Schalkes? It was absolutely amazing. I never thought that this was a story that I would ever tell. I never thought that this was a story that two of Australia's best writers would read. I never thought that it would be a piece that they would ever consider 
could win at a competition with thousands of people entering. I really wrote this story for myself without any intention that another reader would read it. I know that sounds a bit silly, but it truly was a personal piece for me to write. You know, you guys listening to you, just typical writers full of anxiety and self-doubt, but incredibly (laughs) talented. (laughs) Now, I'm just going to get you, Tessa, to read a bit of an extract of your piece um, so readers get a taste of how incredible it is. Sure. Mum and Dad are still sulking and snarling after last night's argument, but are showing small signs of resolve as the afternoon's promise of a drink and whatever else edges closer. It's the first day of spring and warmer than it should be. In years to come, hot spring days like this will hit me sharp in the face like a warning. But today I fall easily into mum and dad's slipstream and get to work, packing my textures from the coffee table and pouring crisps into plastic bowls. At some point in the afternoon, the adults pile into the lounge room, faces and fingertips hardened from too many late night gigs in Sydney's pubs, bellies bloated from the grog catching up with them. So Tessa, you know, you said that this piece took you 20 years to write. So from a very young age, I've kept diaries. And in those diaries, I've always kept sort of snippets of writing and poetry and short stories. And uh, I've written about what's happened in that particular day or in a moment. But when I was in year 11, actually, I wrote the first version of this story, but albeit with sort of far less graphic imagery. And At the time that I wrote it, my teacher in year 11 in my school report that year said that she absolutely loved the piece and that I should continue creative writing, even if it was just for sort of my own benefit or my own interests. But it actually took me another 20 years before I went back to that piece and felt like I could actually revisit it. I had had somebody on the day that I saw the Emerging Writers Competition advertised uh, with the theme of emergence. Uh, have a discussion with me about sort of the contents of the story. And she said, I think you're at a point in your life where you're ready to climb out of those windows. And that image really sort of connected with me. And I thought, that's actually how I can write the end of this story. And it just felt like the stars aligned and I went home and really wrote it, well, rewrote it um, from that year 11 piece sort of in, in almost one hit. And a couple of months later, here we are. Wow, what an incredible story. Um, And Monica, you really reach back into some memories yourself in your piece, Cabbage, which is so beautiful. And the judges actually said of your piece, it's possibly one of the most universal of stories, that of a child lost in a market. Yet this astonishingly confident story reads as if we are hearing that tale for the first time. We are in the shoes of that child, And we experience the sanctuary she finds in family and her overwhelming fear and terror when she believes that safety has gone. What was it like getting that kind of feedback from Christos Schulkes and Alice Paul? The fact that it sounds like that they had quite an emotional reaction to it and a connection to it. It was really lovely to hear that sort of feedback in terms of connection to story rather than structure or the quality of writing and that sort of thing. So I really appreciated that. Could you read an extract of your piece, Monica? As the groups of passers-by dwindled down to one or two, I saw Atu standing there waving the head of cabbage at me. I ran to her, ducked under the metal gate that barred people from exiting and grabbed her around the legs rubbing my tears and snot on her skirt. The bubbles of sadness popped and I felt soothed. Why did you leave my side? Atu asked, 
holding me by the shoulders and forcing me to face her. So Monica, tell us about what inspired this piece and how you threaded that concept of emergence, which was the competition theme in your piece. I feel like this story has always sat somewhere inside me. Um, It was, as I mentioned, sort of within a month of coming to Australia. And it was one of the most terrifying things that happened to me here because at that stage I couldn't speak English. I didn't have a mobile phone. Some adults had mobile phones. Most of them didn't. So when I felt lost, I was so, so terrified. And to this day, finding my auntie feels almost like a miracle. Now with hindsight, I look back at Bonnerig Plaza and it actually seems quite small. But at the time, it felt like I was lost in the whole of Australia. But in recent times, so I was awarded the Next Chapter Award through the Wheeler Centre. And so I've been working towards finalising a manuscript. And a lot of that has been me digging into stories around family, stories around identity, specifically the Assyrian identity. And this story kind of grabs at all of those. When I was trying to think of the concept of emerging, at first it kind of stumped me because I just kept thinking of people popping out of the water or like some kind of near-death experience or maybe like somebody giving birth. And all those things were really wonderful but not necessarily experiences that I've had. So it was like this idea of hope sat a little bit closer to home or this idea of comfort or this idea of feeling lost and feeling found. Yeah, especially I think the theme of immigration, there's so much dislocation in the immigrant experience and this idea of feeling lost and wanting a sense of home and belonging. And this story of getting lost is such a metaphor for your family's journey in Australia. It can be quite overwhelming moving, changing countries, changing homes. So yeah, I think that that was sort of a small experience of what my parents were going through in a larger sense. Yeah. And the use of the cabbage was extraordinary because that was kind of the grounding force and it's a big part of Assyrian cuisine too. So how did you kind of think of that idea of making the cabbage the central motif in the story? It was quite unintentional. I find that generally when I write, I gravitate towards sort of singular images or singular objects. I also love food. So anytime I can incorporate food into writing, it's always really great. But yeah, I I sort of knew that we were in Franklin's and I thought of the kinds of conversations that you normally have with family members. And a lot of the times with shopping for fruit and vegetables, I always find that if I'm there with an older adult, they take on this role where they're teaching me about the different fruits and vegetables and which ones are the good ones. And I remember so often picking out what I thought was a good apple or a good pear and then having it criticized, like, no, you need to turn it this way and look undecided. Um, So it was a very natural conversation. And I kind of picked a cabbage because I kind of like the size of them and they are used in Assyrian cooking and they do have to kind of be a bit sturdy because they get boiled and they have sort of sauce and meat and rice in them. So the idea of picking out a good one is quite important. It's also the kind of thing that will sit in your fridge for a while. I'm sure we've all thrown out that cabbage that we forgot about. Oh gosh, I think of cabbages completely differently now (laughs) after your story. (laughs) They have a much deeper meaning for me now. And also, I mean, like Tessa was mentioning, like it's such a 90s vibe, you know, Franklin's and Michelle's patisserie and 
those kind of vivid moments of a particular time in Australia, in Sydney, that makes me very nostalgic, actually. A lot of people have said that to me. I think it's definitely a part of most of our childhood, but I also think it's a time when there's less of an international market. So everything that you could need, everything that you interact with, everything that you see in the supermarket is quite domestic and contained. Like I I remember speaking to you, Sarah, earlier about how we thought that Michelle's Patisserie had the best cakes in the whole of Australia, which now like there's there's so much competition out there. Um, But at the time to look at like the humble Michelle's patisserie and think these are the best cakes in the whole wide world. Like there's something quite lovely about that. In addition to the fact that I think it connects so much to childhood memory. I think what you both do so powerfully is you recapture that child's gaze, you know, and what it feels like to be in that moment in your life, which is really hard to do as an adult. Tessa, could you, I guess, talk about how you how you really did that and was that a challenging thing to do? I don't know if it was challenging. I think what I tried to do was in the parts of the story that are really written from a younger girl's perspective was to think about what are the things that that girl is seeing or hearing or focusing on at that particular point in time You know, I've sort of spoken about the zigzag stitching on the buttonholes. I've sort of referenced things that that girl can see and can hear and how she was sort of feeling about it, but without sort of explicitly describing the broader context. And a lot of people have who have read the piece have sort of said, oh, you've written in such a a sort of restrained way, you know, as a compliment. But actually that wasn't intentional. It was that I truly thought, you know, from the child's perspective, you're focused on what is happening at that particular moment. It was really just trying to sort of squarely sit from the child's perspective and and speak to what was happening and the ways that children cope with very difficult things. Um, You said that it was important to you that the story communicated strength and hope, that even those with the heaviest of secrets can go on to do wonderful things. How important was that for you? Uh, it was actually critical and I wouldn't have written it in any other way. I wouldn't have written it at all if if I wasn't able to do that. And I think the theme of emergence was really what allowed me to do that and to think that this is a story that I could tell because there are a lot of women out there, a lot of women who this is the usual, this is happening on a day-to-day basis. And These are very strong women and very strong children and that is really at the crux of this story that it's actually not their shame to carry and I can understand why a lot of people carry that as a secret for a very, very, very long time but ultimately what I wanted to show with this story is that it actually wasn't a secret that she needed to be carrying anymore. This was a secret that was somebody else's secret essentially. Both of you, you know, This is an incredible accolade, a massive platform. A lot of people are going to be reading your work and this is work that is memoir, so it's from your life. So I'm wondering what this process has been like for you and have you had any interesting reactions and people connecting with your work? Um, It's been good fun to be able to share it with family because I'm speaking specifically to like like an Assyrian experience or an Assyrian-Australian experience. Um, my dad shared it with my uncle and he really enjoyed it. Um, he was also able to share it with some of his friends. 
and my auntie in Iraq read it as well. So like to be able to connect with family that way, I think most of the time they know that I do this writing thing, but it doesn't always make complete sense. So it's nice to be able to show something and to be able to share a story that that helps them connect with my experience, but also makes them feel like they're seen. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and Tessa, what's the process been like for you? When I hit submit, I actually listened to an earlier episode of this podcast series where last year's winner, Kat Yen, was speaking about some of the challenges and anxieties that come with sharing a personal story with the world. And I think a part of her story referenced a tight pussy, if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. (laughs) And it was a really entertaining and funny episode and I recommend that people listen to it. But I had no idea when I was listening to that that I too would be facing a situation where I'm sharing an incredibly personal story with the world that includes some quite graphic imagery. When I found out that I won, there was like layers of horror and absolute excitement, don't get me wrong, that came with sort of thinking about this piece being shared with the world. First of all, the horror of, oh my gosh, people are actually going to read something that I've written. Is it good enough? And then the second layer of, oh my gosh, it's this story that they're reading. And then, oh my gosh, my employer's going to read this and my family. And, you know, it was just like I kept having these realizations about thinking about different people reading it. But sharing this with the world has been one of the most affirming and heartening experiences of my entire life. And I don't say that lightly, but people have rallied from far and wide and the reaction and reception has just been beyond anything that I could ever, ever in my wildest dreams have imagined. People have just been so supportive. So I've just had to get over myself and my own anxieties about whether or not it's good enough or Um, I guess, the content of the story and just send it out to the universe and and let people have the reaction that they have. So it's been absolutely amazing. Definitely good enough, Tessa, actually the best. (laughs) Now, Monica, you know, you actually entered previously and your story is in Roots, which was the original anthology from the competition. And I think about your ethic, your work ethic, which is so incredible, I remember James Baldwin once said something like, you know, talent is overrated. What matters more is persistence and endurance when it comes to writing. You're very talented also, but you're extremely persistent. And I wanted to know, like, how did you hone your writing skills during those two years? I think it is the case with any skill that if you just continue to do it, you will see yourself getting better, particularly if you Um, if you allow yourself to be open to feedback, even if it may seem uncomfortable, you'll naturally see yourself getting better and better. I realized the first time that I wrote the story, I felt like I was holding myself back a little bit and being quite tentative in what I wrote. It cost me a lot less emotionally, but this time around, I tried to be sort of a little bit more sincere in what I was writing and tried to put a little bit more of myself into it. And then that, in addition to me just having written a lot more over the last two years, meant that there were skills that I have at this stage that I didn't have two years ago. Part of it was me um, taking a little bit more of a risk with this story than I did previously. And part of it was certainly just giving it another go. 
That's actually such great advice. Um, A, be open to feedback. B, kind of look at that self-censorship that does happen and see, you know, that vulnerability of you really going there. And we felt that so deeply in the piece, like it was so beautifully told and it really did reflect the vulnerability of that, you know, little Monica. And I'm wondering for you, Tessa, um, you said before that, you know, you wrote this not thinking anyone would read it. Did that free you up in writing the piece? Absolutely. I think if I had have been thinking about people reading it, it would have been a completely different story and it probably wouldn't have done very well. In fact, I don't even think I would have read the story if I had have truly engaged with the idea that people were sitting at the other end reading it. That That's the honest truth. You're such incredible writers and you really dedicated yourself to the task as well. What's your creative process and routine like, if you have any? Um, it, it's never sort of a clean start to finish. I find that I generally start because there's some kind of image in my head that I can't escape, whether it's something that someone's saying or the way that somebody looks. Like, I don't know, if I think, oh, there's a lady with beans in her pocket and she keeps them there in case she gets hungry, but they're raw beans. And then I'll, that image will just stay in my head until I write it down. And then I'm like, okay, well, who's the lady? Who is she friends with? Where does she get the beans from? And then slowly it starts to become something, mm. but it takes time. Sometimes I find that this idea of like some kind of idea coming to you isn't always practical. So I think sitting down and just picking something and just writing it, and it may not sound very good and it may not be necessarily what you want to write, but just to kind of get into the habit of it or get into the mindset of it. I find that it's kind of comparable to exercise where you have some really great workouts and then you have some crappy workouts where you're just counting down the time to go home. But as long as you're there and you're showing up, it's good. But I would say just sit down and do it and it may feel rough and it may not feel good and it may not be what you want to write. But if you give yourself that space and enough momentum, you'll get there. Oh, that's really good advice. A combination of catching those butterflies, but also just sitting down and doing the work, which, you know, none of us really ever want to hear, right? Um, but necessary. Tessa, you know, your process, your creative process, do you have one? And what does that look like? It's highly technical. It's a, the notes app in my iPhone. And I write down random words and sentences that like Monica, there's sort of something about them, a thought, an image, an idea, a word that I like the sound of, and I pop them in that app. And then when I get 10 minutes between sort of full-time work and kids and all the rest of it, I might just write it into a paragraph. And sometimes enough of those paragraphs fit into one piece. And that's about as technical as it is um, for me. And actually with this piece, I sort of wrote the end of it before I wrote the beginning of it which was, again, quite different. I felt like I had a strong sense of what I wanted the end to look like and then sort of had to think about, well, where do I start this story from? Like how, from which point do I actually begin the story? But no, I don't have a particular a process that I go through and I'm pretty slack as well with the kind of regular practice and that's something that this competition has really inspired me to do better is to just sit down and write 
even if it feels hard, even if it feels like I don't have enough time. Thank you both for those insights, because I think all of us make that walk in the forest in our own way um, through the creative, you know, subconscious kind of world that you have to kind of embody to do this kind of work. And I had a question also about both of you in terms of your relationship with reading and writing as children. Like, was it a handhold for you? Was it an escape? Did you think that you would become a writer? Like, what was that relationship with reading and writing like for you, uh, Tessa? I read and read and read and read and read as a child. I would cry if I didn't get up early enough in the morning to read before I went to school. My English teachers and drama teachers have been some of the most important people in my life in that they were key people in sort of holding a mirror up to me uh, through some tough times and saying to me, you can do this, You're, you've got some skills here. And they were absolutely fantastic and really encouraged both my writing and reading. But I was very rarely without a book in my hand as a child. And Monica, the library played a big role in your life growing up, didn't it? Yes. So when I came to Australia, as I mentioned, I couldn't speak English and I also didn't know how to read. I was probably about six and there was a lot of embarrassment. I think I started on level three and it was like, Tom has the ball. Tom gives the ball to Kate. Kate has the ball. And they were the most boring books ever. So I used to get books from other levels, even though I couldn't read all the words, they were at least more entertaining. And so from there, when I started to sort of pick it up, I found myself just consistently at the library. I would like beg the library teacher to let me have more than four fiction books because I would get through them in the week and then have nothing to read on the weekend. And I would also beg for them to let me borrow books over Christmas, which was not allowed. Otherwise, the only time I really got access to books is from like St. Vincent de Paul. Somebody had donated a whole bunch of Enid Blyton books. So they were like 50 cents a book. So every couple of weeks I would get to go and get one of those 50 cent books and read that over and over again. In terms of writing though, it never felt like an accessible world to me, probably not until late teens, early twenties. It always felt like something that a different kind of adult would do. An adult that was living in the mountains or somewhere on a beach with their dog just a very, very different environment to where I was growing up and to the kinds of adults that I got to see. Tessa, you also were quite nervous and weren't sure if you wanted to enter this competition. And I guess, you know, what's your advice to other emerging writers, writers who, you know, don't feel like they're capital W writers or, you know, they're not sure if they have a story to tell um, or they're experiencing that self-doubt like you did. What's your advice to other emerging writers um, who are listening on this podcast? My advice would be to give it a crack. You never, ever know. I think write about something that you know. Don't worry if it's not perfect. Don't worry if you hate parts of the story. Some of the bits that I actually wanted to delete and very nearly did delete were the exact lines that the judges said in their feedback were their favourite parts of the story. I would also really encourage both SBS and other emerging writers competitions to keep pushing the line that it doesn't have to be completely polished because for people who are writing perhaps for the first time and also to ensure that you're getting a really diverse 
uh, range of voices and people entering the competition who might have an incredible story but haven't had the opportunity or the chance or the access to all of the things that might make you think that you can be a writer, it's absolutely critical. But just give it a go. You absolutely never know what the universe has in store. I love that. And Monica, you grew up in Sydney's West from a refugee immigrant family from the Assyrian community. What's your advice to other emerging writers who want to be where you are? I would definitely second what Tessa said in terms of writing what you know. I think that's quite a powerful thing. I also think that it's important to look at writing as not some kind of high art or some kind of unachievable thing. We all tell stories to our families, we tell stories to our friends, we tell stories to one another, and we know the things that make those stories engaging. It's it's the details, it's the funny little lines, it's the context. And so I think having that sort of quite casual approach can be quite beneficial. I think there's also a lot of sort of community programs that are out there that are looking for young aspiring writers. And so applying to those can sometimes be helpful. If there's anybody that wants to be a writer that's Assyrian, contact SBS and please SBS put them through to me because I will gladly help in any way that I can and give you access to any of the resources that I have access to. I really think that there is a way for all of us to connect and support one another in terms of achieving our goals and achieving our writing or artistic goals in particular. But I would say just do it. A lot of people make it seem like the world is really, really inaccessible, but it's just stories and we've all been telling them and some of us have been telling them for thousands of years. So it's a world that you know, it's just getting it down on a piece of paper that's the transition. Thank you so much both for that beautiful advice and I know that your stories will connect so deeply with thousands of people and I'm so glad that you wrote your story and you shared it with us and the world. Thank you both for being here. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Tessa and Monica, and I am so looking forward to reading your future work. If you or someone you know is impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence, call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 or visit 1-800-RESPECT.org.au. If you want to read any of our winner's stories, head to the Voices website at sbs.com.au forward slash voices. And if you'd like to read more stories from Australia's emerging diverse writers, make sure to check out the anthology Between Two Worlds, which features the top 30 stories from last year's competition. And of course, Roots, which features stories from the inaugural 2020 competition. They are both published by Hardy Grant and available now. The anthology of this year's top entries will go on sale next year, so keep an eye out for that. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Sarah Malik, and it was edited and mixed by Jeremy Wilmot. Executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Teutsch. That's it from the New Writers Room podcast for the year. Happy holidays and remember, keep writing.